0: So the course of the French Revolution. The course of the French Revolution. Of course, everyone looks at ideas and stuff that happened before, the dominoes of the past, and all this absolute and errant and total nonsense. It drives me crazy. All this absolute errant and total nonsense. <sighs> it's like saying a woman poisoned her husband because... There were poisons in the vicinity. No. Everyone who's married, you've got rat poison under the sink. You've got bleach. You've got all kinds of murderous stuff all over the place, all the time. The ideas were around. Bad ideas, murderous ideas, convulsively evil ideas are always around. Always around. <sighs> every society contains every ingredient for every potential outcome. It's like saying, well... This woman, she ended up dating that drug addict because he was around and he was charming. No, there are always charming drug addicts around. Sane women don't date them. Well, this happened because of this before. The, the before thing made this thing happen. But that's just dominoes. You understand? That's just dominoes. And that renders history worse than useless. Oh, drives me crazy. Again, it renders history worse than useless. What is the purpose of history? The purpose of history is to understand it so that we can avoid the bad, right? To understand it or to avoid the bad. Now, if everything's just dominoes, then we can't avoid that. We can't avoid the bad stuff. We can't learn from history and avoid the bad stuff at all. History then becomes absolutely worse and useless. It's a deceptive lie, the study of history, It's snake oil salesmen. It's a cure that doesn't exist for a disease that can't be changed. It's a lie. Why did the French Revolution happen? The French Revolution happened. I'm going to make the case. Let me just give you the theoretical. I'll make the case. The French Revolution happened because of every single individual decision that every single person made throughout the entire history of France. Does that sound like a mess? (laughs) Yes. I'll make the case. I'll make the case. It was the aggregation of every decision made by every individual throughout the history of France. But well, that doesn't explain anything. Give me a chance. Things do not exist because they happened before. That's physics. That's not morality. That's not choice. That's humanity. That's just blind matter and energy. If there's a rock dislodged from the top of a mountain, bouncing, crashing down the side of the mountain, we don't know where it's going to end up, but we know it's not a free will thing. We know it's not a choice thing. We know it's not a moral thing. Can you imagine me standing below a mountain with giant rock, a giant boulder crashing down and me yelling at it, UPP, turn left, turn UPP, ethics says turn left. Let's say there's a car at the bottom of the mountain and I talk, I'm screaming at the rock about property rights. Don't initiate the use of force. Don't smash that car. It's not yours. You don't own it. You can't control it. You can't destroy it. That would be the actions of an insane person. Because everything that happens to that rock bouncing down the hill is the result of prior matter and energy interactions. Everything that happens happens because of what happened before, when the rock is bouncing down the hill. So, if we say... Well, you see, the French... Revolution happened, you see, because the king waged wars, ran out of money, and tyrannized his people. Huh, right? So then you're saying that every time a king wages war, runs out of money, and tyrannizes his people, you get the Reign of Terror, you get the French Revolution. Nope. How does it explain anything? <laughs> Do you really think that 18th century France was the only time where a king waged useless wars, ran out of money, and tyrannized his people? Huh. I wonder if we could ever find any other historical and or contemporaneous examples where that happened and it did not result in the French Revolution. You see, it tells nothing. My parents beat me because they were beaten as children. Nope. No, that's not why. Well there's got to be a reason. They don't just people don't just act randomly. That's true. That's true. But if you find one exception, you have to look for a better rule. You follow? Physics becomes interesting when you say, well, everything falls down. Oh, wait, there's a helium balloon. That's going up. Oh, wait, there's a soap bubble. That's going up. Oh, wait, clouds seem to hang in the sky. Oh, wait, birds fly up into the sky. Oh, wait, right. Then you come up with something interesting. Then you come up with something interesting. Looking at the exceptions is how you find out things, how you learn things, how you arise from the mere sense-based animal spinal action not quite elevated human standpoint. And how could anything possibly improve if every bad thing happened because of bad things beforehand? How could anything possibly improve? You find one person who says, I won't lay a finger on my children because I know how bad it was to be beaten. You find one person who says, I never touch alcohol because my father was a drunk. And then your domino theory Flies out the effing window. I'm not going to say with you with it, but I'm not going to say the thought was entirely absent from my mind. Not you personally, one, right? Does a man get lung cancer because he smoked? No. A man does not get lung cancer because he smoked. That's leaving the fundamental variable in the equation out of the equation. It's a cheat a man gets lung cancer because he chose to keep smoking a man gets lung cancer because he chose to keep smoking a man beats his children because he chooses to beat his children i say ah whoa, 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 whoa. why does he make that choice why does he make that choice there is no answer there is no answer because any answer negates and denies free will. Why does the man beat his children? Well, I know, having been beaten as a child, that there are times when those who abuse you have horrible attacks of conscience and the lid to hell opens and you see the fiery contortion hellscape underneath. That's a moment of learning. That's a moment of grace. That's a moment of realizing that you're doing something wrong. And then people make a choice. They either choose to say, I'm doing something wrong, I have to stop, or they double down. But why did they choose one thing and not the other? You can't answer that. On every conceivable level, you can't answer that. And you'll never know the answer. I mean, somebody can say, well, you know, I, I hit rock bottom, I was beating my kid, and I was like, man, I got to stop this, and I read books, and this and that. Well, they'll tell you, you know, I hit rock bottom, but that's not an answer. They chose to do better. Where did that choice come from? It doesn't come from somewhere, because that's to put human morality in the realm of bouncing rock down the mountainside physics, which is to fundamentally confuse human consciousness with causal, physical, unconscious, unmindful, unthoughtful, unbrainiac matter. Newsflash! Human being different from statue. Why is the statue where it currently is? But because people put it there. Why is the statue where it currently is? Well, there was a rock slide and it went down the mountain. Why is the statue currently where it is? Because leftists didn't like it and put it in a furnace. Why is the statue... Because there's some external force that acts upon the statue that puts it where it is. Why is a human being doing what he's doing? There is no why. Because he's a human being. He chose. Where did the choice come from? It comes from selective attention. It comes from selective attention. It comes from the fork in the road. Why do people choose one fork or the other? Can't answer. Can't answer. That's a free will thing. That's a conscience. That's a choice. Look, everyone in this life embraces and avoids responsibility. Everyone, you, me, every single person evades and avoids responsibility. Like literally over the last week, I had some paperwork to do. And I kind of dodged it a little bit because I was really focused in this and that. And good, bad, whatever. But I could have made that choice anytime. I finally did the paperwork today. I feel better. Good. Yes, done. Okay. So I avoided the paperwork and then it's like, now I really shouldn't avoid it. And also I know I will feel better when I get the paperwork done. Got the paperwork done. Oh, look, I feel better. I'm 57. I'm still learning this lesson. I should just do my homework Friday night and then just enjoy the whole weekend. Ugh. Some people keep evading their responsibilities. And some people do it sensibly right away, and I would say probably 80 to 90% of the time I'll do it right away, And but you know, this one, I was just, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, can't answer. You say, ah, but why did this bad person do this bad thing, right? And if you've had conversations, if you had abusive parents and you would have a conversation with them, you say, Why? Did you continue to abuse me? Why did you beat me? Why did you yell at me? Why did you neglect me? Why did you harm me? Why did you hurt me? Why didn't you love me? Why didn't you do the right thing? Why weren't you a good parent? Blah, blah, blah. Okay. You'll never know why. And you might have some idea why good people do good things because their conscience is clear and they can tell you their thought process. But you will never, ever, ever and a half forget the answer as to why a bad person does bad things. Why? Because they did bad things by avoiding the truth. Their conscience is hell. They've doubled down. They've done the kind of wrong usually for which there is no restitution. You think somebody so committed to evil doing that he will beat a child repeatedly is going to honor the truth by telling you the facts, being totally and completely honest about why he. No. Newsflash. Child abusers. We'll lie to you. And in fact, that's all they'll do, is they'll lie to you. That's all they'll do. That's all they do, because if they could tell the truth, if they had a commitment to the truth and honesty, they wouldn't be child abusers. Lying is the opposite of empathy, right? For someone to tell the truth, they have to recognize how valuable the truth is to others. For someone to tell the truth, even at his or her own expense, has to be to put somebody else's needs and the right thing to do above their own discomfort. In other words, they already have to be moral, to want to tell the truth in the first place, to even value it, to notice it, to have any clue how valuable it is for others. You can stand before your parents and beg them for the facts, and they will lie and they will lie and they will lie. How do child abuse? How do child abusers handle power? Well? They torture people with it. So if you go to child abusers and you say, please, sir, tell me the truth. Please, ma'am, tell me the truth. Oh, look, here's a child of mine who I have power over. The child needs something from me. How am I going to handle that power? Well, badly. I'm going to abuse it. Right? So you'll never find out. You'll never find out from evil people why, why they do. All you'll get is excuses and gaslighting and fogging and denial and bleh, and violence if you push too hard and are too accurate. You'll never get these answers. Every individual little choice the first time you act badly, you're kind of shocked, kind of surprised. And it's your choice then. Do you say, well, I should really do better? Do you have empathy? You know, my mother who beat me once or twice would, in the night, come into my room, hold my hand and weep. sob at how she had treated me. I know. I mean, I say once or twice because I remember it once or twice. I don't know how many times she did it when I was asleep. She was wretched about how she was treating me. Well, why didn't she change? There is no why that has any answer at all. Why is for chemists and physicists, mathematicians, biologists, engineers. Why? Why? Yeah, all those dealing with inanimate matter can have a why. Now, I can say with confidence that the result of choosing to keep smoking is probably going to get you're going to get sick you were a heavy smoker, you're going to get COPD, lung cancer, emphysema, something, right? I can tell you the why after the mystery. Why did you get cancer? Because you chose to keep smoking. Why did you choose to keep smoking? There's no answer to that. There's no answer. Particularly when people get older, because they do bad things or foolish things, because they have avoided the truth. They have avoided the truth. It's it's very easy to alienate the truth. Bit by bit, you push it away. Bit by bit, you push it away. And the further you push it away, the less valuable and relevant and important it becomes. Bit by bit, you push it away. You drive it away. And it fades into the middle distance, becomes blurrier and blurrier. You get lost in the fog. The fog becomes comfortable. And you never have to change and you never have to grow. And the vanity of believing that whatever you do is right becomes the drug that comforts you until the hellscape of the last third of your life opens up and you see what you have done and what you have become. The cause of the French Revolution was every choice made by every individual over the hundreds of thousands of years that led up to it. People also want to sell you on the big man theory, the great man theory of history. Ah, Napoleon came along and he did this, and Robespierre came along and he did that. As if this answers anything. Why did the plane crash? because of gravity. (laughs) What is that answer? How about all the planes that don't crash even though they're subject to the same gravity? It answers nothing. It means nothing. It tells you nothing. Worse than nothing. It's the illusion of an answer which prevents you from actually pursuing the right questions and the right answers, the potentially real answers. Everyone has the choice and we all balance this. Uh, There's no absolutes here. It's not an Ayn Rand novel. Well, there are a lot of Nutty people around. (sighs) Okay. What am I going to do with that? What am I going to do with all these nutty people that are around? How am I going to handle this? What am I going to do? I mean, I don't want to go nuts. I don't want to be nuts. But there are a lot of nutty people around. Crazy people. Religious zealots. I think of Salem. right? 18th century. 17th century. Think of the Salem witch trials. Some people said they didn't think people should be prosecuted for witches. Some people kind of went along with it, and other people were eagerly leading the fray. And, of course, in England and America, it was a crime against the state, not against God. So you got hung, not burned. In most places in Europe, the rest of Europe, it was a crime against God and the church, and therefore you got burned. People always think of these witches getting burned at the stake but legally they would have been hung as the witches were hung in Salem and other places. Why were these witches hung? Why were these women branded as witches and hung? Because people believed in witches and because it was uh, against the law and because it was... No! 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 it's because all the people who had doubts and all the people who had empathy shut up and went along. And why were there so many sociopaths in the French Revolution, because people chose to beat their children. But they themselves were beaten as children. Don't care. So was I. Doesn't matter. Doesn't answer anything. And frankly, fuck you with your evil erasing causality. I'm sorry. I know it's rude. I apologize. But I want to really get this across. Not you. Not you listening to this. You're a hero. And I appreciate it. I really do. Fuck the people who are like, well, it's causal. You know, these dominoes. things happen. They beat because they're beaten. All they're doing is saying that they either have done evil, are doing evil, or really want to do evil. I want the excuse of causality. You have no excuse because you are a sovereign soul. You are a glorious God or nature-driven mind with a conscience, with this incredible ability to compare proposed actions to ideal standards, with ethics, with virtue, with morality, with concepts, with reasoning. How powerful is your mind, and why would you why would you degrade it to a mere gravestone slab of inevitable dominoes? Why would you do that? Why would you take your glorious brain and rub its nose in the scabby, scatological pre-dirt of prehistory? Why would you take it down to the level of the ape when you are a god in your mind? What a piece of work is a man! How. Noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a God. We can do it all, we can be it all, we can move mountains, change the world, leap history, escape the dominoes, dance to the music of the mind like our feet, were fire. And what do people say? Well, I did it because of that. Things fell on me and I fell over. Every little decision, which is hung and burned because people went along. People went along. They went along. When we see this, right? You got to hate this guy. You got to hate that guy. You got to hate Trump. There's white you, you All of this stuff. And people are like, okay. They don't question. They don't ask. All of that is a choice. All of that is a choice for which they are absolutely completely and totally, causally, factually, empirically, and forevermore completely responsible for those choices. You choose not to think. You are responsible for every atom of the inevitable disaster. Every atom. You follow? What were the causes of the French Revolution? I will tell you. And we'll go into detail about this. But everyone's choice to avoid reality, to avoid truth, to conform to the craziest among you. When you conform... You feed the meat and muscle of the mindless bullies in charge, right? Conformity swells the power of the anti-rational. People conform to the anti-rational and say, well, there's not much reason in the world, don't you know? Isn't that strange? Human nature must be somehow dedicated and devoted to being against reason. Isn't that odd? No, no, no. You are laying out the bait. You are feeding the animals. You are laying out the food. You are making it easier for them to come to you than to hunt in the wilderness. If you keep leaving meat out in the Serengeti, can you really complain? Oh, there's lots of lions around. That's very strange. Well, you keep feeding them. You keep feeding them. It's like that kid who comes home with the dog. He's grappling to his chest like a dying man with a life raft. And he says, can I, can I keep him? He followed me home. No, he didn't. You pulled him home. You grabbed him home. Let's talk about psychohistory. The Psychohistorical Stages, with a nod to the late, great Lloyd DeMoss and Psychohistory.com. So, psychohistory is a discipline that studies the psychological underpinnings of historical events. And it merges the principles of psychotherapy with the techniques of social science research. And this combination helps to decode the emotional roots behind the somewhat incomprehensible or otherwise incomprehensible actions of groups and nations throughout history and, of course, in contemporary times. So there are stages or developments in parenting that have been identified by psychohistorians. It's different kinds of child rearing and the kinds of societies they produce. It's so important to know so that you can look at history and understand it. It's not a big man. It's not a big ideas. It's not a historical inevitability. It's not dominoes. It's parenting. It's childhood. It's every individual choice, every individual parent makes in the raising of his or her children produces these big events. Now, the major stages of parenting, all right? So the first stage, the most primitive stage, is called the early infanticidal mode. You tend to find this in small groups based upon kinship. This type of parenting has extremely high rates of infanticide. There's very often, very common, maternal incest, maternal abandonment, and practices particularly around puberty, including body mutilation, body modification, torture, and so on. There's endless amounts of emotional neglect by parents, and children are often used as erotic objects and distant, mostly absent, or highly immature father figures. And you tend to get married off in these kinds of societies even before puberty, and little girls, of course, are raped and, and exploited and so on, right? And so you end up with a dominant form of personality among the adults, which is schizoid. Now, we can think of the Amazonian aborigines, the Australian aborigines that I spoke about five years ago or so in my tour of Australia, and you have highly ritualistic magical activities, magical beliefs, magical theories. You know, these are the guys with giant bones through their necks and thousand yard stairs from their entirely. Messed up brains, so there's very little sense of self and other. There's very certainly no empathy, even for the self. And there's hair-trigger responses, highly volatile personalities, and they, they would be mental patients in sort of a modern society. They can't. They have completely magical thinking, no empathy, violent, prone to explosive rage, and and so on. Right, and don't even they don't really recognize rape as a thing. Right, it's just I don't know assertive sex or something like that. So. That's the early infanticidal mode. Now, there's a late infanticidal mode, which is more, more than kinship and like the very early state. This is generally when you would go from hunter-gatherer to agricultural society. And so it's beyond small kinship groups. There's a larger group, and you don't know everybody. There's a larger group. could be, a, again, early government, early state, and so on. Now, infanticide rates are still very, very high. And there is still child rape, and especially in royal and educational contexts, right? So you can see some vestiges of this in the fairly terrifying rates of sexual abuse of young athletes by coaches, right? So, or what is supposed to be the case and is often talked about with regards to boarding school and buggery and so on, so... There is a lot of child rape, child sexual exploitation in the educational context, in sports and coaching contexts, and in royal contexts as well. Because to be an aristocrat, to be a king, is to be fundamentally separated and alienated from others. And if you recognize and have empathy for others, you can't rule them. So how do you create the rulers? Well, you create the rulers by brutalizing them as children so that they don't develop empathy, so they can rule in a cruel way that maintains the power of the king, the aristocracy, and so on. So ruling through destroying empathy through relentless abuse. And this is, of course, when you look at England and the boarding schools and the British Empire and so on, you would train people to be cold-hearted towards those they rule over by putting them through terrifying levels of child abuse in school, right? So that's late infanticidal mode. Now, in this mode, there's less rejection of the young child by the mother, and fathers begin participating in the older child's education, right? So generally from sort of seven to ten onwards. The use of child sacrifice to reduce societal guilt increases. There's an introduction of infant restriction tools such as swaddling and cradle boards, and beatings are now not just impulsive rage. They are restructured as a form of, quote, discipline. Now, the late infanticidal mode of parenting produces societal structures that are brutally controlling and they advance through large-scale violence and exploitation. So this is the beginning of interstates wars, of, of taxation and so on, right? Now, stage three is the abandoning mode and this can be really seen in early Christianity. So stage three is the stage where the perception is that children receive a soul at conception. And what that means is that infanticide is suppressed, is reduced. I mean, obviously, if there's a child who has a soul, then abortion and infanticide are much more a challenge, right? I mean, the early Christians, obviously married, didn't practice infanticide. They had lots of children and so on, right? And that's really important because that wasn't as common as you might think in the middle to late Roman Empire. So for thousands of years, and particularly in Europe, steps were taken to transition from early, late infanticidal parenting to abandonment, which is, believe it or not, a big step up. So instead of killing your children, you would offer them to monasteries and eventually, of course, as we saw with Rousseau, orphan homes and so on. There was an increased use of swaddling and the hiring of wet nurses, which again is better than just killing Your children. And of course, because the children are generally not as much growing up seeing the ritualistic or rage filled murder of their siblings, they are less schizoid, can begin to develop the first glimmerings of empathy and so on, right? So, through this phase, we get the rise of wandering scholars, we get child servants, and direct murderous child sacrifice was transitioned to the sacrifice of Jesus, right? The general pattern tends to be those you do evil to provoke your conscience and their provocation of your conscience is perceived by you to be an assault upon you and therefore you attack them back. But if you are redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus, then you can take your sins and hand them over to Jesus rather than taking them out on your children. Now, pederasty continued uh, in educational institutions, in boarding schools and in monasteries, assaults on girls were still common. And children were, of course, perceived as inherently evil, which led to severe beatings. So, again, it's not modern parenting as yet. Now, both the rich and the poor still had some fairly high rates of infanticide, abandonment, molestation, and physical abuse throughout the early Middle Ages. And this is an evolution from the schizoid personality, where there's barely any sense of reality, and it's incredibly primitive, to the borderline personality structure. And that would have emphasized reliance on authority figures, and the advocation of wars against perceived enemies as a projection of their own feelings of guilt and abandonment. The worst parents tend to be the most pro-war, right? So when I see people who are pro-war, I look at bad parenting because you are looking to find an enemy to vent your bad conscience on. Just as you did with your children, now it becomes The enemy's soldiers, the other country's soldiers, they must be sacrificed for your own bad conscience. And often it's older people whose children may be out of their direct control, and so they cast about looking for others they can make suffer for their own bad conscience, and that tends to be pro-war. Now, next we have, starting around the 12th, 13th century, we have something called the ambivalent mode. The ambivalence mode. Now, it's just starting. Not commonplace. There's just some first tendrils, some first, you know, like that smudge on the horizon when dawn's coming in about an hour, just the beginning. So starting in the sort of 12th, 13th century, you begin to see fewer children are sent to monasteries. You start to see the the emergence of child instruction manuals. You see that the rape of children began to be punished. There was an increased availability of education and some development of the field of pediatrics. They were the first laws to protect children. So there was a perception shift. Children were no longer perceived as sinful, evil vessels that you had to beat Satan out of. And they were like, they're malleable. They're blank slates. They're like soft wax or clay. You can mold them. And that means, of course, that the abusive parents have left less of an excuse, right? So if there's a parent with a really, quote, bad child, right, then we would look at the parents and say, gosh, what did you do? But once you start to say, well, children aren't inherently evil, they're just kind of soft and malleable, they're moldable, they're blank slates, soft clay or wax, then to have a, quote, bad child is a humiliation to the parents. And, of course, people like to avoid humiliation, so they began to treat their children better. Because it wasn't like, well, I tried to beat Satan out of him, but Satan won because my child is bad. Well, what can I do? It's like, well, you must have done something. You must have done something to produce a child like that. So, this means that, like coaxing a squirrel to feed out of your hand, the more peaceful or less violent parenting styles began to coax the personality away from chaotic schizoid trauma, away from borderline manipulation and unreality. It began to coax the personality towards reality. Come here. Come on. Come on. Come to reality. Back to life. Back to reality. And what do you get? technological advancements, the growth of cities, and the emergence of the early modern state. And you get, in particular, massive advancements in agricultural technology approaches. You get winter crops like turnips. The enclosure movement happened a little later, but it started with 10, 15, 20 times productivity increases in crops. People began to experiment. They weren't so traumatized that reality was scalding to them. You began to be curious about reality because you weren't expending all of your energies just propping up your insane mental state, right? You have that when you're, you know, really worried or concerned about something. You're not out there trying to figure out how to measure irregular surfaces by dipping them in water. You're just trying to hang in there, right? So next, you start to get the intrusive mode, began in the 16th century. So at this point, some parents are beginning to unswaddle their children. Wealthy families begin, in fact, to raise infants themselves, or at least they didn't ship their kids off to a wet nurse in the ass end of nowhere. They had the wet nurses in the home. Closer emotional bonds with parents were starting to form. In England, there were notable reductions in the brutality of parental control attempts. It was no longer that the children slept with the parents and had to suffer through their sex lives, but you began to get individual child beds even individual child rooms, some privacy. Mothers were beginning to nurse their children and they deferred toilet training till later, until it was developmentally, what we would consider now developmentally appropriate. Because in the past, in the earlier parental modes, toilet training would start almost right away and you'd beat your child for that which the child cannot control, his urination and excretion functions. So there's less trauma. The child isn't being beaten. And of course, when you are a child, when you release your bladder, you release your bowels, you feel pleasure. You know, we all know that, ah, right? But then when you get beaten for that, pleasure turns to pain. And when you have the anticipation that pleasure is always going to turn to pain, then empathy with yourself and the hope for pleasure and trust becomes impossible. It's like the people who watch too many horror movies. What always happens in a horror movie? Somebody relaxes and blah, someone jumps through the window or something like that. It's always a scare camp, right? They're just programming you to never relax, to view relaxation as imminent disaster. 16th century and onwards again, not even, not throughout society. What do we see? We begin to see later marriages, fewer births and more parental and societal investment in children. There was a decline in arranged marriages and a rise in married love, to love and get married for the sake of romantic attachment rather than arranged marriages. And there was less domestic violence. Amazing. Incredible. Now, this improved psychology and personality enormously. What do you get? Scientific breakthroughs. This is the beginning of the scientific method. Bacon. Political and economic advances. Now, this is a period where... British and American parents in particular were often criticized as overly indulgent. You're spoiling those children they're going to grow up without any standards. This is the blowback from the emergence of more peaceful parenting in the midst of more brutal and intrusive parenting. And you begin to have cross-tribal empathy, right? What is free trade other than cross-tribal empathy? Free trade is saying, well, there are people over there, they want to trade too, just like me. If we exchange mutual benefit, that's to the best and all that, right? It's having something in common, right? We all know that we have much more in common with our fellow tax serfs than we do with the rulers all over the world, yet they continually set us against each other. In the 18th century, right, this is, of course, the time of the American and the French revolutions, there's a new mode. It's called the socializing mode. So there's an introduction of the idea Shocking, really, at the time, that a mother's love for her child is innate and deep-rooted. The average child counts per woman in America and in France decreased from seven or eight to three or four. Now, you want to provide more care per child. You have the capacity to provide more care per child. So parents are aiming to embed their reasons, their thoughts, their ideas, their arguments in the child. You're not just beating them. You're beginning to instruct them, to teach them, to reason with them. So, when your child becomes like you, I mean, it's a little narcissistic and all of that, but some of the positive traits are good, obviously, to see mirrored in your children. Now, again, it's not peaceful parenting. That's in the future. But the commenting parenting tools were psychological manipulation combined with spanking for discipline. Psychological manipulation. Withdrawal from the child if the child displeases you. Getting the child to do what you want through coaxing, through nagging. Psychological manipulation. And... There is still, of course, spanking for discipline. It's very common. Even this is the common thing in the West now, right, for the most part. Now, this paved the foundation for the modern world. We get democracy, the free market, the stock market, modern science, modern educational methods. So France, where was France? Well, France was one stage back behind America and Britain. France was generally in the intrusive mode, not the socializing mode, and the leaders in particular. So if France is largely in the ambivalent and intrusive modes, at least one stage behind America and Britain, that would have some explanation. It's not causality, because the causality is people deciding to be brutal to their children, and as a result of people deciding to be brutal to their children, they stay stuck in a previous mode. It's like saying, why is Bob not an accountant. Well, Bob is not an accountant because Bob never got his accounting degree. No, that's not why Bob's not an accountant. Bob's not an accountant because Bob chose not to study to be an accountant. I mean, I never got an accounting degree. Would people look at me and say, why is Steph not an accountant? Why is Steph not a ballet dancer? Right? I mean, I just didn't study these things. Didn't want to do these things. It's not for me. Why are they behind? Because they wouldn't treat their children better. I mean, listen, man, come on. Let's be real. I mean, we're always real. Let's be super real. How easy has it been for me to be a good parent, to be a peaceful parent? How easy is it for you to promote voluntary relationships, to promote virtue over historical bonds? How easy has it been for you to be good? It's been hard sometimes, my friends. It's been really hard. I don't need you... To tell me this, I don't need to tell you this. We know you've seen it with me. You've seen it in your own life, much more vividly in your own life than with me. But it's hard to be good. It's hard to be good. It's A lot of opposition, a lot of blowback, a lot of undermining, a lot of attacks from more primitive mindsets. Right. So people made the choice. They made the choice to beat their children. Well, everyone else is doing it. I mean, look at the sort of the hatred of Trump. Right. Uh, we just hate Trump. Right. Well, why are people doing that? Well, because they're told to. Because they're programmed. Because they're right. They won't think for themselves. Right. That's a choice. That's a choice because they want to get along. Because they've, if they say, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know if Trump's as bad as they make him out to be, right? Or whatever, right? Like whatever they might say that might be even mildly skeptical, right? What are all their friends going to say? <gasps> right? And their friends are going to reject them because they're not really their friends. They're just they're just propaganda dungeon dwellers not wanting anyone to break free. So they know. They know, right? And it can go the other way too, right? It can go the other way too. Where you so you find something of value in the left and then people on the right, oh, right? All those little decisions. Are you going to just shut up and conform to what everybody else wants you to say and be and do? Are you just going to go along with everyone else? Are going to think for yourself? These are all choices. So from all the accountings that I've been able to find at the time, I mean, looking particularly at childhoods, what do we see? Britain and America are far better than the rest of Europe. In Britain and America, you, you can find earlier accounts of mothers who actually enjoy spending time with their children, nursing them playing with them, bonding with them, eye contact, skin contact. You have greater speaking out against beating children and against swaddling. And Britain and, of course, America, which drew a lot of its population from England, were regarded by the rest of the Europe, as I mentioned, especially in Eastern Europe, as overly permissive, they're spoiling their children. And in America, of course, the monarchy was thousands of miles away. And Now in England, of course... The monarchy models how to raise children for a lot of people. And in the monarchy, what do they do? In the British monarchy, while well, I was part of the aristocracy, historically, my sort of family and the boarding school, I went to boarding schools, and there is military, harshness, coldness, discipline, distance, duty, approval. It's heavy, heavy chains and weights of obligations. And what that does is it creates a personality, like an upper-class personality type that's cold and harsh and rigid and kind of sociopathic and exploitive and destructive and emotionally distant, I'm saying Prince Charles, but I'm also not saying not Prince Charles, or King Charles, Spaniel. So that becomes what you look up to. That becomes the ideal in many ways. So in America, the monarchy is thousands of miles away, and you don't like the monarchy, so you're going to reject that whole approach. In England, the coldness of the people who went to boarding school, the upper-class people, the coldness of them, the harshness of them, the mocking, the cynicism, this is part of the insane humor of the British, the Douglas Adams and the Monty Python, is that there's a lot of mental illness in the higher reaches of British society as a result of these more primitive parenting modes. But the middle class is different. The middle class, you can't survive without empathy. You don't have empathy, you can't make it. You can't make it. You think I could do what I'm doing without empathy? You think I could have these call-in shows and I could listen and attentively respond to people's deepest thoughts and fears in ways that are incredibly productive for them, for you, for me, for the world? Massive empathy. Do you think I could have been in business, in marketing, without having empathy for what people need, what people want? In the middle class, you can't make it without empathy. Now, in the upper class, you can't make it with empathy because you've got to be cold and cruel and keep your super-inferiors, as they say, in, as in their inferior position and... You beat the peasants and the serfs. and You've got to be cold. In the lower classes, you also got to be kind of weird and cold and lack empathy because otherwise you're going to get out. And what happens if you're in the lower classes and you try to tunnel your way up to the empathetic middle classes Well, all the people in the lower class will attack you and savage you and drag you down and you're better than us. You think you're so great. I'll just drag you and they'll hobble you. They'll literally hack and slash at your self-esteem to try and keep you down, to brutalize you. Upper classes no empathy, lower classes anti empathy sometimes. Middle class, you need some empathy. You need some empathy. Which is why those who want to control mankind have to target the middle classes, right? Have to target the middle classes, particularly the self employed, small business owners and so on, right? They're too small to gain the sociopathic might and power of the state to aid them. They're too big to be just employees and told what they're do what to do, right? So I mean the COVID measures largely targeted small businesses and there's no it's not accidental, right? It's not accidental. So in America, the example, the cold-blooded, blue-blooded, frozen-hearted example of the monarchy, thousands of miles away, the church is not an official arm of the state. And for most children in America, what was education? Education was homeschooling. You learned directly from your parents. You worked alongside them from a young age, conversation back and forth. And of course, you can't just brutalize your children to get them to work for you. What are the mottos of each nation? America, life, liberty, and, of course, originally it was life, liberty, and property, but they couldn't square slavery with that, so they had life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Whereas France had liberty, equality, and brotherhood or death. Brotherhood or death. Obedience or death. Obedience or hell. Obedience or murder. Obedience or destruction. Of course, they had wildly different ideas of what liberty meant. For the schizoid personality, for the borderline personality, for the sociopathic personality, even for the severely neurotic personality, liberty means liberty from responsibility. It means liberty from reality. It means liberty from consequences. Liberty really from life because they're so traumatized in early childhood that they can't assume responsibility for adulthood. And so they're constantly yearning to go back to a state of infancy of early childhood where equality of outcome is moral, right? Equality of outcome is moral when you're dealing with infants and toddlers because equality of outcome means they all get to live. So that's virtuous, right? So the people who get stuck and frozen in very early stages of development always want equality of outcome because they mentally still toddlers, infants. Equality of opportunity is an adult thing. Equality of outcome is a toddler thing. America held true to the value of the individual life over some this sort of vague notion of brutal equality, but... What did they say? In France, terror will be the order of the day. Well, that was the order of childhood, that was the order of child raising. that was the order of the brutal church. Well, in America, you were born sovereign and free to pursue happiness through freedom from coercion, freedom from compulsion. First Amendment, Second Amendment, you were an adult because people had actually grown up because they hadn't been frozen in trauma through brutalized early childhoods. In France, you were born into a blood prison and your life was owed to the collective monster, the mob, that could demand of you everything and sacrifice you for everything. Just as babies and toddlers demand everything and sacrifice their parents' happiness in order to survive, the mob, who were still essentially toddlers, but with the capacity for adult violence and brutality, manipulation and language, the world of the American was the world of sovereign and free adults negotiating with relative equality. In France, it was toddlers and babies with knives and rage and a vengeance that could never be satisfied.